You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. Okay, so let's, uh, let's jump right in. Uh, just some very brief context from the last couple of weeks. Um, covenant with Adam, very simple, right? God says, I'm going to redeem my people, right? Adam's created in perfection. Everything's great. He ruins it. It's his fault. Him, Adam, and Eve, both cursed. But in the curse, what does God say? I will redeem my people. That, if, if you remember nothing else about the covenant with Adam, just remember that. I will redeem my people. Next week, right, the covenant with Noah, right, we see that God watches as the consequences of sin wreak havoc upon the earth. And what does he say? He says, I'm, I'm starting it all over, and I'm starting it over with Noah. And what does he tell Noah? I won't, I won't do this again. I won't bring this kind of destruction again. I will preserve the earth until my people are redeemed, right? So Adam, I will redeem my people. Noah, I will, I will preserve the earth until I redeem my people. Then he comes to Abraham and he says what? You are my people, right? He says, Abraham, you're going to have a family, but that family is not just going to be a family. It's going to be a nation, right? And that nation will bless the nations. So I will redeem my people. I will preserve the earth until I redeem my people. Abraham, you are my people. And then Moses, right? Here's the covenant of the law where Moses gives very specific instructions about how the people of God are supposed to live, right? So where Abraham, God said to Abraham, you are my people, you will be a blessing to the nations. Through Moses, he's saying, this is how you will be a blessing to the nations. This is how you will live a distinct, set-apart life so that I am glorified. And now we arrive at this week, the covenant of David, where essentially God says this, my chosen one will rule my people, or I have a king for my people. And we are going to look at the implications of that uh, here as we move forward. And let me just say this, right? This is the last covenant um, in in the Old Testament, at least of the the major ones, right? And this is the climax of the Old Covenant, right? So all all of these covenants sort of form, right? Like I said, one overarching covenant of grace in the Old Testament. This is the climax of it. Essentially what it's saying is, when the king sits on the throne, then the kingdom has come, right? Now, this is true of the new covenant as well that we'll look at next week, um, but I won't give any spoilers. All right. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see, um, we see chronicled for us, Right? the installation of David as king, and then ultimately God's promise, God's covenant with David. And what we can know is this. As we've seen Adam build, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, as we've seen all of them build on each other, right? Adam, Noah, um, Abraham, and Moses establishing the house of David, right? This promise that God gives to David here, this covenant that he makes with David is part of God's master plan to do what? Now remember, Genesis 3.15, God promised that, look, even though the earth is cursed, even though it's broken, and even though it's all your fault, I am going to redeem my people. This is the climax 
of that promise. So, how did we get to this place? And we have to do a little bit of a, a crash course in history, so I, pro- I apologize if it's a little bit um, labored, but this is essentially what happens, right? Last week, God delivered Israel from Egypt through Moses, right? They wander in the desert. God says, I'm going to give you a land to possess. Well, eventually they do so, right? Moses dies. Joshua takes over, leads them into the land. But as usual, right, this is the the whole story of the Old Testament is just the failures of Israel over and over and over and over again. And so what happens? Israel sins, right? Israel falls prey to assimilating the people that they had come to conquer, and they begin worshiping their gods instead of worshiping God, the God of their fathers. So what happens? God gives them over to their enemies, and ultimately what happens is is they actually become enemies within the kingdom, right? So civil war ensues, and the nation of Israel, this land that they had been given to possess, is now two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, right? So you have this people that have been gloriously redeemed out of slavery, walked with by God himself, pillar of fire by day, uh, by night, pillar of cloud by day, right? given manna from heaven, water from the rock. This is that people led into a land, given a land to dwell in, and still here we find ourselves in the middle of their brokenness, right? And the book, uh, just right before this in Judges um, chapter 21, it tells us this. It tells us that there was no king in the land at that time, that there was no king of Israel, that everything has fallen apart. And this is the last verse of the book of Judges. It says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then fast forward into 1 Samuel, right, which is the book literally right before uh, 2 Samuel. And this is what the people of Israel ask for, right? They've seen that a leaderless land um, has, has essentially gone to hell. And so they cry out to God and they say this, Then all the elders of Israel, this is in chapter 8, all the elders of Israel gathered together, came to Samuel, who was a prophet, and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So God says, you want a king? You can have a king. Totally fine. It's supposed to be me, but you've rejected me. So here you go. And Saul is appointed king. And what we can know uh, just very briefly again from Saul's reign is that everything essentially kind of goes really poorly um, with Saul uh, to the degree that God essentially, again, because of Saul's disobedience, says, you know what, Saul? We're done. I'm going to appoint my own king. And that's the King David that so many of us probably, probably know, right? And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that's kind of all of what's happened leading up to this point. We need to know that because this is super um, important as to what this covenant is going to mean for us shortly, right? But so now, with the reign of David, here's what's happened. Civil war is over, right? 
Israel and Judah united into one nation in peace. David makes Jerusalem his capital, a city that's strategically located between the northern and the southern tribes, good for transportation, defense, communication, but also helps to unify this divided kingdom. And then what David does is he brings the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, linking his kingship with the rule of God in Israel. And we come to this place, and it tells us in verse 1, it says, Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet. So God, right, God through his king, the king that he has appointed, King David, right, he has now given to the nation rest, both from their enemies on the outside, but also from one another internally. So Israel is experiencing a peace and a prosperity unlike anything it has experienced probably ever in its existence in that before they were enslaved in Egypt, right? Then they were wandering in the desert. Then they were in the middle of civil wars and all this other difficult, painful, relationally uh, uh, intricate things taking place. And here they are, united under David, united under the great king that God had promised. So, let's get actually into the text here then. This is what David says. Now that there's peace in the, in, in the kingdom, now that everything's sort of sorted out, right? Everything's nice, spick and span. David says this, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, so David, David sees something that's incongruous, something that doesn't line up. And what is that? He looks at the, the, the tabernacle, right, which was built um, for the people of God um, as they wandered through the desert. It was the place that God would dwell in the midst of his people. And it was essentially a giant tent. That's all, that's all it was, right? A giant tent that God lived in that wherever they went throughout the desert, wherever they traveled to, that tent would up and come with them. And so here's what David is saying. David is saying, look, the kingdom is unified, Everything is good. I'm on my throne. I have a temple. I have a place that is permanent. And God, God's, God's dwelling in a tent still. He says, I don't, I don't understand how those things line up. It, it seems as though I am receiving more glory uh, than God is. And for that, I want to make restitution. So he says, look, I'm going to build you a house, God. I'm going to build you a house. Out of a humble heart, Eager to glorify God, David wants to build a temple. And Nathan, the prophet there in verse 3 says, that's a good thing to desire. That's an honorable desire. But God, God disagrees with David. Right? But rather than rebuking him sharply, he honors the holy desire and then he redirects David. This is what God says in verse 6. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So here's what God says. God says to David, that's great, but 
I've always dwelt in a tent, and there was never a moment in time in which I dwelled in that tent that I asked anyone ever to make me a house of cedar, to make me a house, a place that is more permanent. I want to dwell and be with my people where they are. He says, I've been in a tent since Egypt itself. I don't need a temple. Now, on the outset, right, that may seem... Uh, fairly innocuous, and that, okay, just, just keep reading, right? But what God is saying here is profound, um, and there's a, there's a preview, I think, um, of the gospel and of, and of Jesus, which we'll, which we'll get to in just a second. But essentially, let's just be reminded what's taking place here. The first thing that God is saying is this. One, God wishes to identify with His people, right? If they travel the wilderness in tents, God wants to be and is, in fact, there with them. That God is willing to condescend, to come, and to dwell in an earthly, human-made, handmade tent among His people. Astounding. And then second is this, that God is not only near to His people, but that He even shares in their humiliation. That the people without a home, God came and was a God without a home, without a permanent home for sure. It's a foretaste of the gospel, and we'll, I'll, I'll connect the dots here in just a minute. So, instead of David building a house, what does God say, right? What, what's the redirect, right? Because God says, I'm going to build you a house. I'm sorry, David says, I'm going to build you a house, God. God says, no thanks, don't need a house, appreciate it. Um, what now? This is what um, God says in verse 11. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give to you rest from all your enemies, moreover, the Lord declares. The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Right? So, David, I'm going to build you a house, God. No thanks, David. Appreciate it. I'm going to build you a house. What's, what's going on here, right? If we, if we were to study the, the Hebrew language, then we would know this, that, that the word house, right, can mean several things. It can mean temple, it can mean palace, or it can mean dynasty. And what's happening here is ultimately that we've got the same word being used three times with three different meanings, right? So David says to God, I will build you a house. And what he means is I will build you a temple, right? And what he says is I shouldn't be in a house or a palace, while you are in a tent, right? And then this is what God says in response. Don't build me a house, temple. I'll build you a house, dynasty. He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking not about a specific location. He's talking about the kingdom. So what does God go on to say? Verse 12. These are the promises to David beyond that right there. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. Who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom? He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what is this is this is the covenant right here. This is the promise that God makes to David, right? Again, sheerly out of his own initiative, right? David didn't say, I'm going to go do these things so that I can get this thing, right? It's just God saying, look, I know you want to build me a house. I'm doing something way bigger and better than this. I'm going to use you out of my grace, and here's what I'm going to do. Right, so what does he say? He says, David's own flesh and blood will occupy the throne, right? That's, so God promises that he's going to make a kingdom for David, and he says, your flesh and blood will occupy the throne, Two, that his heir would be the one who would build the house for God. So he says, I don't need you to build me a temple. Uh, your, your heir, your son is going to build me a temple. We know that Solomon actually goes on to complete that, right? Third, David's heir will have a unique relationship to God, right? He'll have a unique relationship to God as a father and a son. Now, for those of us who are believers in the room and have read any, any sort of portions of the New Testament, that kind of language or that imagery is not at all foreign to us, right? And that the Bible tells us that we're adopted sons and daughters of God through the work of Jesus Christ, right? So this, this idea of God as Father and us as His sons is not foreign to us. But for a Jew at this time, this would have been mind-blowing. Mind-blowing that the holy, righteous, mighty God who judges and who justifies would say, your heir is going to be like my son and I'm going to be like his father, was astounding. Right? And then it says what? It says that David's heir may be punished for sin, but that he will not be cut off, right? So Saul sinned and was cut off. God said, I'm done with you. Picks up David, says, listen, that's not going to be the case with you. He may sin, but he will not be cut off. And then finally it says that David's kingdom will last forever. Now, the question that I guess we have to ask ourselves then is this. David's kingdom doesn't last forever, right? In that the people are dispersed, they're ruled again, um, in Bab- by Babylon, right? There, I mean, a whole bunch of history still, still yet to happen between David and Jesus. David's, David's uh, line, David's heirs, right? David's throne, David's earthly kingdom. Uh, I mean, it lasts a long time. It's about, about 400 years, but we're not still talking about it today in, in its present tense, are we? And so the question then is, did the covenant fail? Did God lie? Did He go back on a promise? Did He walk something back? Or was, or was there just something um, so unique that happened in history that God was just like, oh, I can't actually, I don't have the power to, to do that or to make that happen? Was it something like that? And the answer to all of those questions is no. No. Because again, What God is promising to David is something that takes place within 
not just a period of history, but within the arc of all of human history, right? All of creation, and that this is one key cog, this is one portion, this is one symbol, this is one shadow of the glory that is to come in what God is promising to His people. Even even the Old Testament prophets acknowledge that God's promise to David right here is really talking to us about the Messiah, is really talking to us about one who would come and literally reign forever. You see, David's kingdom was absolutely impressive, right? Peace unlike anything that they had seen before, right? 400 years, essentially, of prosperity, right? Underneath the reign of his posterity. But it was only a shadow of what was to come, a pre-illustration of the unbroken eternal reign of the Messiah, the King that we now know because we stand at a privileged place in history. We now know is the King Jesus, right? So I'm going to read some, some verses that I think um, many of us have probably heard before, whether we're Christians or not. Um, we always read these at Christmas, um, but maybe now we'll actually sort of understand why we read them at Christmas and why they're so glorious, right? This is what Isaiah chapter 9 says. Isaiah chapter 9, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah is prophesying to an Israel that is utterly broken, utterly broken, shameful, re- re- rebellious. I mean, if you just read chapter 1 of Isaiah, if you get the chance, it's a broken nation. And into that, this is what Isaiah speaks. David is long gone at this point, but what does he say? Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Right? Isaiah is saying, look, it's not over yet. It's not over yet. Well, So how do we know that Jesus is this son? How do we know that Jesus, like, why, why should we not be like the rest of the Jews waiting for this Messiah to appear? How can we know that he's already come in Jesus? Well, Hebrews chapter 1 says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, whether it's Nathan or Isaiah But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Verse 3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, 
having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, and this is direct quote from 2 Samuel, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, this is what God says of Jesus, his son, your throne is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So, What do we see here? The author of Hebrews directly linking Jesus to the covenant promise of God to David that, that his that his posterity, that that his heir, that his line would be received as a father receives a son. Amazing. Amazing. The unity of the testament of the Bible to us about who Jesus is and what he has done on our behalf. Right? Now, so we've gotten thus far, right? We know that the kingdom now is not a a, a literal in, in, in the physical, like present tense right now. It, it, it will be. That's what Revelation's all about. If you get freaked out when you read that, just remember that that's what's happening there. Um, the how is irrelevant. The what is what matters, right? And we know who the king of that kingdom is. We know that it's Jesus. And we know that Jesus is going to rule it in a certain way, Right? That Jesus' rule, what? Isaiah told us that Jesus' rule is filled with justice and with righteousness and with peace. And so what Jesus said all throughout, Jesus has one refrain, refrain that he repeats all throughout his ministry. I mean, over and over and over again. And what does he say? He says, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. With all of this in mind, right, with everything that we've just walked through in mind, maybe, just maybe, this might change for us the image that we had of Jesus saying that, right? So I don't know about you, but when I used to read that verse, I pictured Jesus essentially this way, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. But when we begin to understand the nature of the kingdom, that it's everlasting, and then two, that the ruler of the kingdom is one who will rule in justice and righteousness and peace, maybe Jesus' invitation begins to look a little more like, repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. The, the kingdom that will reign forevermore, the kingdom in which there is uprightness, justice, and peace, all of those things that we long for are in that place. That place is here, and it's here through me. Come. So that rather than a finger-wagging admonition, it's more of a loving, pleading invitation to come and experience the glory of God's kingdom 
Now, how do, how do we partake of this kingdom, right? If we know that there is a kingdom, if we know that it's not going to end, and if we know that it's characterized by justice, peace, and righteousness, and we know that the king is a good, good king, how do we come into it? Well, we already know, or at least we've talked about regularly, that it's through Jesus, right, um, that that we are saved, that we are ransomed, that we're redeemed, that what was broken in us gets fixed, that the perfect life that we should have lived, that, that we owed to God was paid for us by Jesus, right? That Christ was the God who left His heavenly home to dwell in a tent of flesh and walk in the wilderness of this world among us, right? To be our Emmanuel, God with us. That it was through Christ suffering our humiliation, having the wrath of sin and the consequence of death unleashed upon Him for our sake, that it's by that that we now enter into this kingdom, that it's through that that we become this royal priesthood, this nation that First Peter tells us we are, that we are adopted as sons and daughters of God the Most High, that we're received according to the covenant with David, that we're received as sons and daughters, that we are rebuked for our sin, but we are not cut off. So here's what we can know. Right? Jesus is the full and utter fulfillment of this promise. He is the good king. He is the good king who has come to, to lead and reign and rule over a kingdom in which all prosper. And so I think there's, there's three things that we can know. One is this. What God decrees comes to pass, right? doesn't matter how bleak the outlook is. This is why Isaiah in chapter 9 can look at the ashes of a once great nation and say, it's not over. It's not over. So here's the thing. Whether you are experiencing despair uh, from what's happening in the world around you, or maybe what's happening in the church around you, or maybe what's even happening in the brokenness of your own soul. If you're looking around and you're just going, I don't understand. It has to be better than this. Just know that it is and it will be. Because what God decrees comes to pass. Because if He can promise something 800, 900,000 years before, and we can arrive here before the actual event, and we can arrive 2,000 years later after that event and find the same cohesive message, the same reality, the same truth proclaimed to and over us by the power of the Spirit, then we can know that what God decrees comes to pass. What He says will happen will happen, period, end of story. The second thing is this. We need to be reminded regularly and often that if we are Christians in the room, that we are citizens of a greater kingdom than the one we belong to right now. And here's what that means for us, right? Believe it or not, America will not endure forever. It still has about 160 years to go to even catch up with David's kingdom. And so what that means is that this election in 2016 generally changes nothing for the believer. It changes nothing. Now, 
Will some things change? Yes, sure. But for us, no. It may change how we do some things, but it doesn't change what we do. We still worship God. We still make disciples. We still love our neighbors as we love ourselves in the name of God for the glory of God, right? None of that changes. The nuances of how we do those things might have to change. We might lose some religious liberty. We might lose some some rights here or some money here or economies might go bad or this might, whatever, 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 right? Those are all things that we negotiate with the reality that what God decrees comes to pass in mind. In the face of so much uncertainty nationally, we will be shown where our real allegiances lie. And so my hope and my prayer is that, that, that our allegiances would be found in Christ and that where they are not, we might repent and believe for the kingdom, the greater kingdom, the better kingdom of God is at hand in Christ Jesus. And then third and finally, we need to remember that we are a living outpost of that coming kingdom. So here's what that means. And I know it doesn't happen perfectly, right? We say it all the time. We're an imperfect church. But what that means is that God in Jesus by the Spirit is actively reigning and ruling over the body of believers here and all over the world. And what he is fashioning together is a people that are characterized by righteousness, justice, and peace. And so what that means is that we, we operate with those things in mind. It means when we, when we walk out of step with God's righteousness, we correct it for God's sake because we belong to his kingdom. It means that when we are experiencing tension or disunity with one another, we strive for peace with one another because we belong to God's kingdom and God's kingdom is characterized by peace. It means, it means that when things go wrong, it means that when things or harm falls upon us, that we don't have to seek justice for ourselves because our king is bringing ultimate justice and he will do so because we belong to his kingdom. There are so many other things that we could talk about in this text, but most of all, we just need to know this. Every other story that we read and know and love is this story, but without the real and ultimate ending. Whether it's Lord of the Rings and the return of the king to Gondor, under whose reign peace and prosperity will grow again, the white tree will bloom again. Whether it is the Hunger Games and Katniss bringing down the corrupt capital and restoring to the people power and prosperity, right? I mean, you just go down the line. Any, any story... It's, a, it's the human condition to long for peace, righteousness, and justice. And the only one who can bring it to us is Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We do thank you for the opportunity, uh, again, Father, to gather with your people. May we uh, remember now, uh, God, that um, this people um, is an outpost of your kingdom. We belong to you, uh, and so, Lord, we uh, rejoice that that's been accomplished for us, that again, just like every single one of these covenants, it was your gracious initiative, it was your gracious initiative that has brought them to pass. It is your gracious initiative 
in speaking life and hope and joy and resurrection into us through Jesus. It's because of your gracious initiative that we are here this morning. And Father, may we remember the great price that was paid on our behalf uh, so that we might be considered those sons and daughters of your covenant kingdom uh, over which you will reign and rule forever. So as we partake of your broken body uh, and the blood of Jesus together, um, may we rejoice. May we rejoice in the opportunity this morning to repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. So Lord, we love you. These are all good things and we thank you for them. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.